Good morning, everyone. Welcome to you. My name is Tim Harris, pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church. Uh, delighted to welcome you. Has it been a good week? You had a good Christmas? What y'all been eating this week? Anything good? Yeah. I don't know who invented them. Uh, it had to be somebody from around here. Uh, but I, I don't remember these when I was a kid, but lately uh, at Christmas, we've been getting Oreo balls. Do you know about these things? Oreo balls? They are comprised of the, the main food groups, which are Oreos and cream cheese. I, I, I think that's, that's the main thing. Oreo balls. Uh, fudge people? Any fudge? Been eating fudge this week? Yeah. Wash the fudge down with sausage balls. That's always best. Uh, it, it's good to put those, those things together. Are, are we going to keep eating like this next week? Uh, just let me know when we're cutting this off, because I'm kind of enjoying it as long as it lasts. Uh, one more week and then we cut it off, because once New Year's comes, you know, we usually get pretty serious about, uh, about uh, cutting back there. Uh, if, if you're thinking about maybe how to lose some weight that you put under over the holidays, once more Hollywood leads the way. Uh, they have a new diet. Jennifer Aniston has done this, and uh, she was on TV last night. She looked fantastic. Lady Gaga has used this particular diet, and, and we know how, you know, fantastic she looks. Uh, <laughs> it's called, um, wait for it because this is serious, the baby food diet. Yeah, 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 the baby food diet. It, it's, uh, this, is, this is a real thing. Um, what you do is, you know about baby food, right? It comes in jars, and, and you used to love it. Um, but, but you've probably uh, not had it in a while. Come back to it. Uh, for the baby food diet, you can have 14 jars a day. And you can pick. And, you know, and they come in all kinds of flavors. Some of them that didn't even exist when you were back, back in, in your diaper seat. You have this opportunity to relive those days now. You can choose fruits, vegetables. You know, they even have meat in the little jars. And you can have 14 jars. And if you even want, you can have a sensible adult supper. Uh, on the baby food diet. I'm not making this up. Yeah. It's called the baby food diet. It's also known as the baby food cleanse. I'm not making that up either. But apparently you all know, anytime in a diet when they use the word cleanse, what does that mean? That's code for diarrhea. Yeah. Whenever they say cleanse, that's a fancy way of saying it's going to go right through you. And baby food, it turns out, goes right through you, which is what makes it such a fantastic diet option. Baby food, as it turns out, is very, very easy to digest. Very easy. It's like liquid. You understand? And so it does tend to sort of go right through you. It, 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 it's working for some people. One lady said it sounded like a great idea. She thought this would be like eating applesauce all day long. Turns out it's not. She said that eating baby food is somehow like eating mashed up wet cat food. Yeah, it's probably not what you remember. So let me ask you, baby food diet, is that for you? I can answer that for you, no. No, it's not. For one simple reason, you are not a baby. Yeah, tell it to Lady Gaga, you are not a baby. And if you open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, we'll find that there really is in the spiritual life a certain kind of person who tends to persist in a, in a, in a spiritual infant diet, a person who doesn't ever really grow up and advance into more mature spiritual things. And according to Hebrews chapter 6, the consequences of persisting in spiritual infancy are devastating. 
devastating. Hebrews chapter 6 is where we'll be this morning. It's one of the most argued passages in all of Scripture. So let's, uh, let's take it on in the last sermon of the, of the 2013. Hebrews chapter 6. Let's back up to Hebrews chapter 5 and start in verse 11. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 11. Listen, listen. Uh, if you don't have a Bible open, I'm going to give you a chance. Open a Bible right now. There's one in the pew in front of you. Uh, you want to follow along this morning, keep your Bible open. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. He's been talking, the, the author of Hebrews has been talking about some very deep spiritual things, but he backs up here in verse 11 of chapter 5 and says this. There is much more we would like to say about this, but it is difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. You've been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You're like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. Here we go. So let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God. You don't need further instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And so God willing, we'll move forward to further understanding. Here we go. For it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and then who turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance. By rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. When the ground soaks up the falling rain and bears a good crop for the farmer, it has God's blessing. But if a field bears thorns and thistles, it's useless. The farmer will soon condemn that field and burn it. Dear friends, even though we're talking this way, we really don't believe it applies to you. We're confident that you are meant for better things, things that come with salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers as you still do. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. Are we really going to do this? Yeah, let's do it. It's, it's difficult scripture. Keep your Bibles open. Let's start right there back at verse 11. Apparently there is a problem. There is a condition with this congregation that keeps them from, from making any sort of spiritual progress. It keeps them from growing. What is that condition? It's named right here in the book of Hebrews, verse 11. There's a lot more we could talk about. There's a lot more you could experience, but it's never going to happen to you because you are... 
Yeah. The word in the New Living Translation is dull. You're dull. Okay, this isn't like, you know, you go to bed at 9 o'clock and, 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 you know, you watch old reruns of Matlock. We're not talking about that kind of dull. We're talking about a spiritual quality here. And the author of Hebrews says that it's a very difficult problem. It will keep you from growing. It will keep you from going any deeper in Christ. Spiritually dull is the way it's translated in the New Living Translation. The actual Greek word that the author of Hebrews uses here, it means lazy-brained. You are lazy-brained. I like that. Let that soak in. You are lazy-brained. There is much more we like to say about this, but it is difficult to explain, especially since you are lazy-brained and don't seem to listen. You're lazy-brained. It's a devastating spiritual quality, especially when you see in this text where it actually leads. But there are three symptoms of this condition, three symptoms of this spiritual sickness. The first, of course, is that you don't make any progress. The Christian life, the spiritual life is supposed to be a life of progress. You're supposed to begin in one place and end in another place. It's called growth. But because you are lazy brain, the author of Hebrews says, you don't make any progress. You have been at this so long, you should be teaching others by now, but you still need somebody to teach you the ABCs of the Christian faith. This is what he says. You're not making any progress whatsoever. Do you understand that if, if, if that describes you, if you're one of those so-called Christians that never grows, that never seems to learn anything, I mean, after all of these years of sitting in church and having somebody read the Bible to you, you still don't know Genesis from Revelation. Do you understand? That's a pretty bad sign for your spiritual life. Possibly your lazy brain. You understand? Lazy brain. Not making any progress. You should be in a different place by now, he says, but you're not. And that's devastating. There's, there's no progress, there's no growth that's evident in your life, and there's no appetite for God's word. There's no appetite for spiritual things. There's much more we'd like to say, but you're too lazy-brained, you'll never listen. You have spiritual ADHD, he says, you just don't know how to listen. You cannot apply yourself for more than two minutes toward anything related to something spiritual. Brother Tim, you don't understand. I, just, I got sort of a short attention span. You watched a ball game yesterday that lasted two and a half hours. You wouldn't even get up. You sat there in an astronaut diaper so you didn't have to go to the bathroom. I mean, don't tell me that you have a short attention span. You will pay attention to the things that really matter to you. But when it comes to spiritual things, a lot of people are very lazy-brained. They have no appetite whatsoever for spiritual things, no appetite for deeper spiritual things. I mean, some of you, I literally had to beg you to take a Bible out of the pew rack and follow along. I, I, I don't mean to be disrespectful towards you. I just want you to really take an inventory here and look and see if this scripture is sort of holding up a mirror. Because according to this passage, to have this malady, to have this sort of condition is a devastating thing. You can't live this way forever and expect that there won't be consequences, spiritual consequences to it. Okay, here's where the text goes. It, it, it says right up front that there's supposed to be progress in your spiritual life. You're supposed to be growing and developing and going deeper into Christ. But obviously some people don't. Now that's the first problem that, that the text is addressing. Some people don't do that. 
And he's calling them to. You need to grow up. He says, spiritually, you need to grow up. You need to learn to chew on some sort of spiritual food that's more than just the ABCs of Christian faith. You need to develop an appetite for Scripture, for God's Word, so that you know how to rightly handle it. You, You need to grow up. You need to begin to feed on God's Word in such a way where you can begin to sustain and move forward. But not everybody does that. Just take a look down your pew. Not everybody does that at all. Some people go to church for years and years and years and and call themselves Christians, and they never change. There's never a teaspoon's worth of difference in their life before Christ and after Christ. And that's a real issue. That's a serious problem. Not only do some people not move forward, a lot of people actually seem to move backwards. That they, it's not just that they stay the same, they actually seem to slide backwards, not becoming more like Christ, but some people actually seem to be becoming less like Christ as the days and years go by. And Again, that's the issue that this text is going to address, that some people actually seem to slide backwards. So the question becomes, can a Christian, can somebody who, who knows Jesus, can you slide so far backwards that eventually you just fall off the edge? Can you you slide so far backwards in your spiritual life, making unprogress, you understand? Can you devolve to such a degree that you eventually lose your salvation? Person who's a Christian, can you become a non-Christian again just by sliding backwards? Okay, first the answer to that question that I want you to hear me say is, is, is no. As Baptists, and this is one of sort of a distinctively Baptist doctrine, we preach once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved. I am a Christian. I became a Christian when I was six years old, so that was years and years ago now. But I know that I continue in my faith. I know my assurance of my faith is in Christ. I am still a Christian because he is able to keep me and keep me in his hand. And nothing is able to snatch me out of his hand. It's, it's, it's a biblical doctrine. Once saved, always saved. However, those of us who preach and teach that, and I do, but those of us who preach and teach that have to learn how to read this particular passage and others like it. Because obviously Hebrews chapter 6 is trying to warn us about a real danger. And I do believe it's a real danger. So again, I'm asking you now to hold some very difficult things together. We believe in the assurance of our salvation once saved. But if that is true, what in the world is being talked about in Hebrews chapter 6, especially verses 4, 5, and 6? So let's go back to them. Come back to them with me. For it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and then who turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance. By rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up for public shame. Those are three of the most argued verses in all of Scripture. So honestly, after I preach today, some of you are not going to agree with what I say. And I suppose it's one of those things that we may just disagree on because a lot of Christians do disagree. But I'd also say a lot of people don't read these verses very carefully either because I'm not sure that it's 
all that difficult to see what's being talked about here. Now, obviously, whatever danger, whatever warning is here, it's a real warning toward Christians, real Christians. Obviously, we're talking about real believers here, genuine believers, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, that's the kicker there. Only a Christian shares in the Holy Spirit. Only those who put their faith in Jesus and confess him as Lord and Savior have the Holy Spirit to come and reside in them. So whatever we're talking about in these verses, we're talking about something that happens to genuine Christians. Now sometimes when it comes to matters of salvation and and it looks like somebody loses their salvation, most of us tend to simply say, well, they never were Christians in the first place. And I would say most of the time that's true. I'd say most of the time that's true. I think there are a lot of false converts in the world and a lot of false converts in your typical church. A lot of people who who call themselves Christians but genuinely are not Christians. They've never had a a single moment when they put their faith in Christ, when they really understood the gospel and surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. I think there are a whole lot of people who simply think they're Christians because they come to church. Or they think they're Christians because their family is Christian, because grandma was a good Christian. Or because they have a Bible. Or, Or worse, because they live in America. I had a college roommate who believed at first that he was a Christian simply because he lived in America. He went to Bowling Green High, if that gives you any, any, any hints there. You understand, I think there are a lot of people who have their faith in something other than Christ, and they're deceived, and they imagine that they're Christians, and they're not. So when they fall away, there's no wonder there. There's no mystery there. They were never saved in the first place. But we're not talking about that here. Notice how the author of Hebrews piles on the descriptive phrases to let you know we're talking about somebody who had repented, who was brought to enlightenment, has experienced the good things of heaven, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the power of the age to come. Okay, So we're talking about a genuine Christian who genuinely turns away. They, they really turn away, or you could use the word fall away. It really happens. It's really not a mystery here. It's a genuine Christian who genuinely turns away. They really do. It doesn't mean they take a break from church. It doesn't mean that they go through a season of doubt. It doesn't mean that they go through a rough spot. It simply says they turn away. It is a deliberate, it is an ultimate turning, and it's real. The author of Hebrews assumes that this is real, that this could happen. And then notice the next part, it is impossible to bring such people back. So we're talking about a genuine Christian who genuinely turns away from Christ, and then the author of Hebrews says, it is impossible to bring them back. They'll never come back. They will never come back. It's impossible, he says. So what are we talking about? Brother Tim, I thought you said you believed in once saved, always saved. You just blew that up. No, I don't think I did. But I think you need to hold some difficult things together. And one of the things that we Baptists who preach once saved, always saved, one of the things we don't take seriously enough are these warning passages in Scripture. And there are several of them. And we don't get to not read them just because they're difficult for us to explain. We don't get to skip over them because it's awkward. 
we're loyal to the Bible and not just loyal to Baptist tradition. Understand, whatever we believe, it has to be rooted in the Bible. So we have to take into account what this scripture and all the other scriptures say. So obviously the author of Hebrews is presenting a real warning. Something that can happen. Something that he apparently believes does happen. And it's devastating when it does. So what happens? What is the warning about? If we believed once saved, always saved, then, then what is the author of Hebrews talking about here? It sure looks like somebody loses their salvation. It looks like the author of Hebrews believes that that's possible. Well, I believe that the author of Hebrews does believe that that's possible in, in, in one situation, one sort of condition. In order to understand how a person might lose salvation or forfeit salvation, I think we need to understand what salvation is. How does a person get saved? That's the most important thing to understand. When you understand that, then I believe that you'll come closer to understanding what the author of Hebrews is talking about here. So we're talking about the fundamental principle of salvation. How is a person saved in the first place? Let's look again at scripture Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 go with me there Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 just a few pages back this is Paul now speaking about salvation Ephesians 2 8 and 9 Ephesians 2 8 God saved you by his say the word grace God saved you by his grace when you, say the word, believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a, say the word, gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. We spread the word. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Salvation is not a reward for the good things you do. I could say it a million times and some of you would never understand that. You'd never grasp that. Salvation is not a reward for the good things you do. It has nothing to do with your works. Nothing to do with, with what you do. It's nothing to do with what kind of neighbor you are. You're a lousy neighbor. We're all lousy neighbors. Understand the Bible says we all live in a horrible neighborhood because we're all sinners. So honestly, there's nothing you can do to earn salvation. If it were a reward for the good things you do, you couldn't be saved because you can't possibly earn that. You're a sinner. You've already fallen short. So have I. There's absolutely nothing you can do to earn your own salvation. You can't. It won't happen, and you're not doing it now. God doesn't love you more because you're a good person. God doesn't love you more because you come to church. God doesn't love you more because you put money in the offering plate. God doesn't love you more because you keep yourself sexually pure. God could not possibly love you more than he already loves you. Do you understand? It has nothing to do with what you do. You're a sinner. God proves his love for us and that while we're still sinners, he sent Christ to die for us. That's what the scripture says. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that you do. You're not earning anything. And you're not proving anything. Salvation is a gift from God. It is a gift from God. And none of us can boast about it. 
I don't know how to say it more clearly, but still I think people are disconnected from that. We still imagine somehow that salvation has to do with being a really good person, and you're not. You're better than most, I understand it, and I know the rest of your family. I know you look good at Christmas. You look good when you walk in there with all those janky hillbillies that are in your family. You look pretty good there. But we're not comparing you to the janky hillbillies you're related to. We're comparing you to Christ, and you don't measure up to him. You understand? Yeah. Flip on over to John 3.16 while we're doing basic verses. John 3.16. You could quote this probably. Read it from the New Living Translation. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who, say the word, believes, everyone who believes in him will not perish but have Everlasting, have eternal life. Now, Romans 10, 13, turn to that one. This one's a good one. This one sort of settles it once and for all. Romans 10, 13 says this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what saves a person? How does a person get saved? You're saved by believing in Jesus, simply. But by living a life of belief in Jesus, it has to do with faith. It's nothing to do with what you do. Nothing to do with your works or going to church or being a good person. It has everything to do with what's been done for you by Jesus Christ. You understand? So it's by grace that we're saved through faith. It has nothing to do with ourselves. It is a gift of God through Jesus. So a person is saved by calling on the name of Jesus. That's what Romans 10, 13 says. That's what saves you. Now, if there's been a moment in your life where you called on the name of the Lord Jesus in that way, a moment in your life where you repented of your sin, turned to Christ, and called upon him as your Lord and Savior, then you have become a Christian. And that's what saved you. Is that clear? Do you understand? So a person gets saved by saying yes to Jesus. A person is saved by saying yes to Christ. A person is lost when they say no to Christ, and everybody makes a decision, everybody decides. So you become a Christian by saying yes, and you're lost when you say no. Now here's the question. Once I become a Christian, do I still have the freedom to say no? It's obvious that I'm not keeping myself saved by being a good person. I didn't become a Christian by not sinning, therefore I can't sin in such a way where I lose my salvation. Make sense? I can do some rotten things, but Christ still loves me and forgives me, you understand? I don't keep my salvation intact by not sinning. I keep my salvation intact by continuing to say yes to Christ, by continuing to put my faith in him. But the question becomes, if I become a Christian by saying yes to him, can I turn away from him by saying no? I think this is what this passage teaches. I believe that even as a Christian, God will never take away my freedom. So I can't lose my salvation by sinning because I've already sinned today, people. Understand? I can't lose my salvation by sinning or by doubting or struggling. No, 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 no. 
I am his because he keeps me his. His grace continues to keep me. The only thing that brought me into his hand is that act of choice, that decision to follow him. But once made, can I then make a different decision to unfollow him? According to this passage, yes. It's not that you fall away accidentally. This is a final and deliberate turning. I think it happens. I don't think it happens a lot. I'll say that. I don't believe it happens a lot, but I know it happens. Sometime when you're uh, uh, online, why don't you do an internet search for the name Dan Barker? Dan Barker uh, was an amazing Christian man back in the 70s into the 80s. He was saved at the age of 15. His testimony is famous. Dan Barker... uh, Graduated from a a very prominent Christian college, a university. He was an amazing student. He was on fire for Christ. In 1978, he was ordained into Christian ministry. He had a very vibrant and wonderful ministry. He was known, well known as an evangelist. He led many, many people to Christ, both publicly as as a preaching evangelist, but also privately and one-on-one soul winning. He led a lot of people to Christ. Uh, Rod Dan Barker is a musician. He wrote hundreds of Christian songs, worship songs, including two full-blown Christian musicals that are still performed in churches today, which is interesting because Dan Barker is not a Christian today. Dan Barker is actually one of the leading atheists in, in, in our country. He is the president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation, and his Untestimony is as interesting as his testimony. Dan Barker says for himself, he says, I did not fall away. I did not lose my faith. I deliberately gave it up. I didn't lose my faith. I deliberately gave it up. You'd have a really hard time saying he was never a Christian because he says he was. You'd have a really hard time saying that somehow he never was a believer because there was a lot of fruit from his life as a Christian. But you'd have a really difficult time saying now that he's still a Christian because he says he doesn't want to be. He's not. He's not. He deliberately left the faith. What do you do with a man like that? What do you say about a man like that? Well, I think it's been said right here. It is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who've experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come and who then turn away from God. It's impossible to bring such people back to repentance. That's the hard part for me. It's it's impossible to bring them back. Now, in the Christian family, there are obviously whole denominations that do take passages like this and preach that you can lose your salvation. And usually in those churches, people get saved over and over and over. And some of you have come from those churches. Some of you have been baptized 19 times in in other churches because you would get saved and then you would feel like you weren't saved and you'd come back and get saved again. And and your preacher loved that because he could count those baptisms every year, you know, for the annual record. I mean, he got to count those baptisms. So there's something there in in that. But, But understand that if you take this passage seriously, there's none of that. It's once saved, people. So it's once saved. You get saved one time. If you turn away from that, there's no coming back. 
And, and the important thing you need to know is you wouldn't want to. You'd be Dan Barker out there, you understand? There's nothing in his heart anymore that draws him to Christ. And according to Scripture, he's not coming back. Don't look for it. It's impossible to bring him back to repentance. He tasted in the Holy Spirit. He shared in the power of the age to come. And then he deliberately, ultimately turned away. He, he turned away. And he won't come back. That's hard. Now, I, I know some of you well enough to know that right now you're sweating bullets. You're thinking, oh my goodness, I have fallen away. Can't come back. Going to hell. Let me just tell you, if there's something in you that worries about that, it hasn't happened to you. If you're, if you're going, oh no, oh no. no understand, if, if that's your response, it hasn't happened to you. Because we're talking about a person here who's tasted the life of Christ but chooses death. That They turn away. They, they blasting the Holy Spirit. They walk away completely. And Christ gives them that freedom, I believe. It's the only thing in the world that could take you out of his hand. It's not that anything can snatch you out. You can't take yourself out. The devil can't snatch you out. Your sin can't take you out. But you can just choose to walk out. You can walk away from him. I think that you'll always have that freedom. And some people, some people devastatingly would choose to walk away. But notice... I just love God's word. Go to verse 9 now. It's so good. Dear friends, even though we're talking this way, we don't really believe it applies to you. (laughs) I love this. If you'll notice in every place where these real warnings are given in Scripture, in every single place where there's a warning against turning away from Christ, it's immediately followed by a word of very strong assurance. This is not going to happen to you. Every time. Every single time it's followed by assurance, this is not going to happen to you. And and I love that because I need that assurance. I'm a doubter. I'm a person who worries. And and if you give me those verses 4, 5, and 6, I'm never going to sleep again. I mean, I'm going to lay awake every night going, oh, Jesus, please save me. Jesus, please keep me. Don't let me turn away. Don't let me turn away. Because that's just me. I, I worry. I worry like that. I need verse 9. I need scripture to come back and say, but this isn't going to happen to you. This isn't going to happen to you. So so notice that there is a real warning here, a very real warning. And you and I cannot erase that warning. We cannot cut it out of scripture. We can't act like we haven't been told this. There is a danger. Now, what's the danger? What are we talking about here? What kind of person ultimately turns away? Well, remember where we started. Remember how this whole passage begins. It begins by saying, you know, there's a lot we'd like to talk about with you, but you're so lazy-brained. You're so spiritually dull. It's like talking to a wall. Bottom line, you must not think that you can go through year after year after year. You must not think that you can be so spiritually apathetic, that you can be so spiritually unproductive, 
that you could use the name of Jesus and take the name of Jesus and call yourself a Christian, but give Christ no allegiance in your life. You must not think that you can live like a spiritual fat baby year after year after year and that have no consequences in your life. You must not presume, must not presume that you can live your life as a Christian and at the same time as if Christ doesn't matter at all. You must not presume that that sort of spiritual dullness has no consequence. Now, it's not that Christ is going to stop loving you. He never will. And it's not that Christ is going to going to somehow throw you away because he's never going to do that. But the danger is that you continue to slide, that you let apathy take over your heart to the degree that one of these days you just don't care at all. That's the danger. That one of these days you just don't care at all. And one of these days, it's not that Jesus takes the salvation back from you. The danger is that one of these days you just turn away. Having once said yes, now you say no. Don't think that couldn't happen to you. And don't think that the consequences of that wouldn't be eternal and devastating. I don't think it's going to happen to you. There's real assurance here, brothers and sisters. I still preach once saved, always saved, but I still believe that even in salvation we have freedom. And in your freedom in Christ, you must not take your salvation for granted. You must not take the beautiful gift of the blood of Jesus and trample it as if it's worthless. There's real warning here. Real warning. You need to learn to take that seriously. But there is at the very same time real assurance. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me are mine and nothing can snatch them out of my hand. I am kept in him because he is able to keep me. Until my dying day, I will continue to put my faith in him. It's only by that faith that I am saved. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of salvation. Lord, some of us have taken the gift and then thrown it aside as if it were worthless. Some of us take your name, Lord Jesus, and we call ourselves Christians, but we live like hell. Some of us, Lord Jesus, have been calling ourselves Christians for years and years and years, but there's no fruit of that. There's no sign of change. There's no real evidence of your Holy Spirit at work in our hearts. Lord, I pray for those in this house who may themselves be deceived. They, they've imagined that they're Christians because they've gone to Sunday school. But Lord Jesus, I pray that you would show us what it really means to become a Christian, what it really means to put faith in you, what it really means to be changed by the power of grace and mercy. Lord Jesus, your power to save us is immense. Your grace to keep us is everlasting, Lord. There's nothing that could take us away from you, Lord, except that freedom that we retain to turn away. 
Lord Jesus, I pray that you would keep us in the very palm of your hand and keep all of us, Lord, strong, growing, vibrant in our faith. Lord, the world's just full of lukewarm Christians. The world is full of Christians who soak it up but never, ever give anything back. The world may be filled with people like that, Lord, but I pray that this church wouldn't be. Lord Jesus, we want to be the real deal. We want to be Christians, not just in name only, but Christians who are genuine. Christians, Lord, who show evidence and fruit of faith. Christians who love you with whole hearts. The gift of our salvation is an eternal and and priceless gift. Lord Jesus, may we live in gratitude, never take it for granted. Pray these things in the name of the Savior, Jesus. Amen.